Marguerite, Virginia, who are you? I'm Emily Klein. And welcome to all of you who are listening. We welcome want to, to hear us. your names on the count of three. One, two, three. Delilah. Oh my God. Speaking of Delilah. Delilah is here yes, with here. us. Baby we get to baby. hang out with our sweet little co-host. <laughs> she makes a guest appearance every once in a while. What's she doing? She's eating. She's looking at us. She, when we said her name, she looked up and she was like, what? I'm eating. <laughs> I'm busy. She's such um, a cutie. She just loves, loves all the love. She's you know? a sweetheart. We love loving her. She's the best. And you all know it. Um, so we're Reunited. a Poet Society. Yes, we are. We are a podcast where we talk about our lives as millennials and poetry and how it keeps us somewhat sane in this crazy, crazy world. Mm, debatable. And we share some of our favorite poets, uh, old and new, a little bit about their lives, some of their poetry that we, um... Uh, that we are feeling for the week. So this is one of our main episodes, but we also have sometimes, we finished season one, we're getting ready for season two of our Who's to Say episode. Soon, probably, yeah. Yeah. Who's, who's to say? Who's to say at Truly. this point? Um, but so yeah, so we had season one of our Who's to Say episodes, which are where we share and talk about some of your poetry and some of our poetry, poets that are either published, uh, sorry, self-published or unpublished. Um, we want your work to be able to read and share with the world, share a little bit about you, either anonymously or sharing it full. Sharing it full. <laughs> sharing it full. Sharing it full. Um, so sharing full. if you would like to be considered for those episodes, which we want any and everything of yours, um, please send it over to millennialpoetssociety at gmail.com. You can find that email address either in the show notes below this episode, or you can also find it if you search for MPS underscore podcast on Instagram. You can find us there, give us a follow, give us a whole bunch of likes, watch our story if we happen to have one that day, <laughs> and um, and click the little contact button that's under the, uh, our bio so that then you can send on over your stuff. Fun fact, you can also find us on Facebook. A lot of you don't know that or have just chosen to ignore us on Facebook. Well, but it's also not entirely their fault because we need to be a little more active. Shh, don't tell them <laughs> But yes, you can find Come us on, find us on, Facebook. on you Facebook. Search Millennial Poets Society. We are the pink logo. You've seen it everywhere when you click on this podcast. It's millennial pink. Ugh. I love us, but I hate us sometimes I for all the millennial. Pink. Yeah. It's nice. currently, apparently my room aesthetic, my bedroom aesthetic. That's pretty though. It's like yeah. a pretty version. I like, like our logo is a pretty version. Yeah. But like. That's millennial pink. But like the idea of millennial pink in other ways, I don't know. Just bothers me. Anyway, what's, uh, <laughs> what's going on with you? What have you been up to this week? Well, um, I went to Schmorgasburg again this weekend, Yay. tried some new foods. I had like the waffle ice cream thing. Which, was it good? It was very good. It always looked so good. Although they gave me the wrong kind of ice cream. There was crazy vanilla or key lime and I specifically, I like key lime flavored stuff, but I was like, I want the vanilla. And then I got it and started eating it and it was key lime, but I didn't feel like going back and switching it out. Is it soft serve? Uh, no. It got soft very quickly because... Because it, it was so hot. Yeah. But no, it's like a hard scoop. Hand scoop. Hand dipped. 
That's what they're called. Yeah. That. Interesting. Uh, it was very good. I liked it a lot. What else did I like? We had some very good um, empanadas that were delicious. Mm. We got from like a Brazilian um, stand. And I got that lemonade again. The sparkling lemonade. Uh, it's so simple. And it's, it's so good. It's literally just like half lemonade or like a third lemonade and the rest of it's Canadian or Canadian water. Can't, can't, um, Carbonated water. No, it's Canada Dry, though, is what I was trying to say. Oh, it's not? Yeah, it's Canada Dry seltzer. Oh, it's seltzer, though. It's not. Oh, when I think of Canada Dry, I think of ginger ale. Yeah, but it's the Canada Dry seltzer. Yeah. Yep. Wait, it's not Schweppes? No. Canada Dry makes a seltzer? Yeah. Weird. I didn't know that. Yep, and you drank it in our sparkling lemonade. It was good. I finished decorating my room. In our last episode, I was talking about how I was excited to hang all my stuff, and I finally and you got did to it. it. Yay! I also did my dishes that I talked about in that last episode too. Thank what God. Was doing dishes and um, what was the other thing I was going to do? Renting a car. I rented the car also <laughs> as an update, update. for everyone. Um, and uh, I also have a correction in our feminism fun facts little segment last time. Feminism fun facts. Feminism fun facts. Um, we cracked. We cracked about. We talked about <laughs> what's the crack? Greta, um, Greta Thunberg, and I said I don't know how I pronounced her last name last week. I said like Greta Thornberg or Thornberg or Thornberg. Isn't that a cartoon? Like keeping up Liza with Thornberry. Keep, yeah. Uh, what? Um, the keeping up with the Thornberries. <laughs> the no, wild like, Thornberries. Is yeah. What yeah. But her keeping name up is Greta. with the Thornberries. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Greta Thunberg is her name, and I said it wrong last week, so I'm correcting myself. Thank you. Um. I'm the one with fun stuff this week. Yeah, I had a great weekend though, so yeah. no shame. You went I, and hung out with pumpkin patches. I went and I hung out with the pumpkin patch. You're <laughs> In exactly pumpkin right. pumpkin patches and with... Nope, alone, <laughs> totally alone with the pumpkin patch. That's all I did. No, I went to go see my sister and her boyfriend and it was lovely. We had a great time. It was a weekend in the country. It was exactly what I needed. We baked the most amazing pumpkin bread I've ever had. And Delilah's fascinated by peppermint tea. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was just a really, like, wholesome, good-for-the-soul kind of visit. Um, I hope they felt the same way. I sort of just was like, hey, I'm coming this I'm weekend, by the way. Um, but, yeah. That's so nice. It'll so actually nice be kind of good. You can do that now. Yeah. it's And that they will hopefully come visit me sometime yeah. soon, too. Because so. we've got a pretty cool place to show off, too. I mean, New York's all right. You it's know. all right. I want them to come before the weather gets too bad. Yeah. Well, it's going to be like 90 on Wednesday and then 60 on Saturday. Yeah. It's, it's insane. It doesn't know what it is yet. Um, She's trying to figure out how to sit, and her butt is, like, higher than her head. She's like, well, I guess I live here now. This is where this I, is where the pets are. I fit, so I, I sit. I sit. I guess. Okay. Um, um, should we get started? I think we should. It's been. It's about that time. It's about that time. So it's episode twenty-eight. Yeah. Which means you go first, my dear. Oh yeah, it does mean that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know why I forget this every week. I don't know. <laughs> it's not that hard to remember. <laughs> no. Um, okay, well, so I am going to do a little bit of a, um, like, series similar to what you're doing, <gasps> different topic, but um, a series where I'm going to do it. I think it'll be three weeks, um, but so I was browsing uh, Poetry Foundation, as you do, as I do, every as week. one does. 
as I do most weeks, to sort of determine who I'm going to talk about. And I, I stumbled into their collections section, which I personally love. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so I found this one collection that I really, really liked and thought was really cool about um, Harlem Renaissance poets. Ooh. Yeah. And Very it had We've done a few so far, haven't we? We've done one so far. Well, I mean, there were ones that were happening around the same time as the Harlem Renaissance. Did I not do Langston Hughes? No, not yet. Oh. I looked. You, yeah, you didn't do Langston Hughes just yet. Because I, I thought that was... I thought you had two. Oh, I did Maya Angelou. Mm. But that's not the same as no, Langston Hughes. No, definitely not. <laughs> nope. Uh, but I thought we had two. I thought one of us had, and we hadn't yet. But so that means we need to do cool. it soon. Maybe I'll do him in the next couple of weeks. It's um, not who I'm doing today, but I'm going to do a little bit of an introduction first to the Harlem Renaissance before I get to um, my poet for this week. Sweet. So, if you don't know, um, throughout, you the, know. <laughs> throughout the 1920s, um, creative and intu intellectual life flourished within the African-American communities in the North and Midwest regions of the U.S., but nothing like in Harlem, in New York City. Hey. Live, live. Just enough for the city. There we go. Yep. The musical musings of Emily Klein. That's not me. Uh, That's somebody else. <laughs> the New York City neighborhood encompassed three square miles and was pulsing with black artists, intellectuals, writers, and musicians, including as well as black-owned businesses from newspapers, publishing houses, and music companies uh, to nightclubs, cabarets, and theaters, all of which helped drive the neighborhood's thriving scene. And I just want to put it out there, too, that most of my information came from the, like, write-up on Poetry Foundation. Um, so a lot of this is paraphrased or also not paraphrased and just exactly what they said. Super um, duper. Nobody's going to get us. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, many of the era's most important literary and artistic figures migrated or passed through the neighborhood, helping to define the period in which African-American artists reclaimed their identity and racial pride in defiance of widespread prejudice and discrim discrimination. This is in the 1920s? Yes, is when it, yeah, the, it started. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Harlem Renaissance was brought on by the Great Migration of the early 20th century. This was a period of time when hundreds, uh, um, hundreds of thousands of black people migrated from the south to dense urban areas that offered relatively more economic opportunities and cultural um, capital. Editor, journalist, and critic Alan Locke described it as a spiritual coming of age for African-American artists and thinkers who seized upon their first, chance, ch first um, chances for group expression and self-determination. Mm. Uh, you may recognize names of the time such as Langston Hughes, who we've already mentioned, Claude Ooh. McKay, who we mm -hmm. talked about in episode 10. Yes. Go back and listen to that. Um, and Georgia Douglas Johnson, who I will be talking about a little bit later. Amazing. Um, all of these poets explored the beauty and pain of black life and sought to define themselves and their community outside of white stereotypes. Poetry from the Renaissance reflected a diversity of forms and subjects. Claude McKay, for example, used culturally European forms such as, um, such as the sonnet form, uh, melded with a message of resistance. This can be seen in If We Must Die, which is mm -hmm, the, poet, right. the poem that I read when I read oh, Claude I McKay. Oh, I loved that. Others like James Weldon, uh, James Weldon Johnson. <laughs> James Weldon. James Weldon Johnson. <laughs> Others like James Weldon Johnson and Johnson, not Johnson. I don't know why his name <laughs> is so hard to say right now. Um, 
and Langston Hughes, I'm just going to skip it, we said it, uh, brought specifically black uh, cultural creations into their work, blending rhythms of ragtime, jazz, and blues into their works. Uh, so the period that I'm going to give a brief little sort of description on right now for this episode is uh, 1914 to 1919. Hmm. This, is, uh, this period marked the start of the Great Migration, which um, sort of generally speaking took place from 1916 to 1970. Um, this, as we mentioned earlier, was when millions of African Americans migrated from the South to the North to flee the economic exploitation that accompanied the primary options for occupation at the time. Uh, which were life as a southern sharecropper or tenant farmer. Um, and they also were escaping violent and pervasive racism. Um, so they went north seeking well-paying industrial jobs left vac vacant in the wake of World War I, which cut off cheap immigrant labor from Europe uh, and induced white American laborers to join the armed forces. So more than uh, 175,000 African Americans settled in Harlem alone wow. during this period. Wow. So a huge influx, um, which is really incredible to like have that big of a, a population like shift within that amount of time. That, yeah, like how did the city cope with that, I wonder? Like, I mean, just built faster? Yeah. And I, I mean, guess. that's, yeah, that's how, I mean, you look back at old pictures of Manhattan where it's, like, much more sort of rural and it, like, more... Well, you look at, like, uptown especially, like, mm -hmm. even, I mean, this is a lot earlier, but, like, you look at, like, Alexander Hamilton's time and it's, like, uptown was the country. Right. I mean, that it was, was the, the suburbs. literal suburb. Yeah. yeah which and, was, that's Hamilton Heights, which is... Right. Like he like oh, had a yard and like <laughs> yeah yeah mm -hmm. it's crazy yeah so uh, for our poet this week uh, from the Harlem Renaissance we're going to talk talk about Georgia Douglas Johnson who actually lived in Washington D.C. but she was a major like person of the Harlem Renaissance and influence and um, and and really heavily influenced a lot of artists at the time so cool uh, Georgia Blanche Douglas Camp Johnson. Was wow. born September tenth in uh, September tenth, eighteen eighty, in Atlanta, Georgia, to parents who were both of mixed ancestry. Her mother uh, was African American and Native American, and her father was African American um, and English. Hmm. And uh, her Johnson is her married name, so she was born Georgia Blanche Douglas Camp. Her mom's last name was Douglas, and her dad's last name was Camp. Aww. So she's continuing to add on the names. Wow. <laughs> okay, cool. um, yeah. She was an um, African-American poet and one of the earliest African-American female playwrights. Mm. Um, yeah. In school, she excelled at reading, recitations, and physical education. Funny. Like, just... Well done, you. Good job. Get, get the blood flowing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she taught herself to play violin and developed a lifelong love of music with that she expressed in her plays. Mm. Uh, she graduated from Atlanta University Normal College, which is a funny name for that's, yeah. Um, is that a place? Atlanta Atlanta University, University Normal, College. Normal, Normal College. Yeah, so that was like one of the colleges within the university. The Normal College, the Normal one. You know, yeah, it's like general Gen Ed. Yeah, probably maybe. Um, Didn't have to specify a major, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Cool. She taught for a bit, so I don't know. Yeah, maybe it was just sort of a general thing that then allowed you to go into teaching or something. Yeah, yeah. But so after she graduated, she taught for a brief time in Marietta, Georgia, before 
In the hills of Marietta. Musical interlude. <laughs> uh, before leaving that career to pursue her interest in music. Where do you think she studied music? I'm not looking. I can't read your notes. She covered her screen as if I were looking. Where did she study music? Yeah. Emory University. No. No? Oh. Uh, Juilliard. No. Kent State. No. I don't know. Where? Oberlin. At, oh! There was the, like, a couple episodes back. Oh! I was like, why is this significant? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, because um, it was the first integrated, full, like, it was the first college created to be both male and female students, so co-ed. In the country? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and she, she went, went to school there and what year? Music. When? Yeah. And apparently, so the Wikipedia page didn't save this, or one of the websites didn't say this, but apparently she also studied music at the Cleveland College of Music. Um, she was an Ohio gal. She, well, she wasn't an Ohio gal, but she lived in Ohio for a brief amount of time. While well, she, she she's an Ohio she's, gal by heart. She's as much of an Ohio gal as I am. Yeah, you're so. an Ohio gal sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> uh, she then moved back to Georgia, where she became an assistant principal in a public school. Hmm. Uh, then in 1910, she moved with her husband to Washington, D.C. Her husband, Henry Johnson, was not supportive of her literary ambitions, um, Oof, which sucks. Yeah, he was in politics and everything. Uh, he insisted that she devote more time to becoming a homemaker than publishing poetry. Boo! Yeah. Um, she later later dedicated two poems, uh, The Heart of a Woman in 18, uh, 1918 and Bronze in 1922 to him. Uh, although she traveled widely in the 1920s giving poetry readings. So, I mean, he had to, like, he didn't like it that much, but she still, like, went out and did all these things. And she was just sort of like, I'm going to do it. And he had to be like, don't. I mean, okay. No, <laughs> I hate it. Um, he died, though. Oh. Um, in 1925, uh, and after her husband's death, she became, um, her home became the site, uh, oh wait, I skipped a bit. Um, <laughs> her husband <laughs> died in 1925, and she supported her two sons by working temporary jobs until she was appointed as the Commissioner of Conciliation by Republican President Calvin Coolidge Whoa. as a gesture um, to her late husband's loyalty and political service. Because, like I said, he was in politics and everything. Um, so she was appointed, um, she was given this like role and everything. So she had a job, which was great. That is great. Um, after her husband's death, her home also became the site of the S street salon and, um, important meeting place for writers of the Harlem Renaissance, hey. such as Langston Hughes, uh, Jean Toomer and Spencer, Richard Bruce Nougat, etc. Um, in Washington, D.C. So that was sort of like a really big meeting place for artists that were going through Washington, D.C. at like either passing through or there for like readings and that sort of thing. It became sort of like the big... And we've talked before about salons, about mm -hmm. how it was like a really big sort of cultural thing at the time right. for people of like similar thinking or that sort of thing to... We talked about it with Dorothy Parker a lot, I think. And Gertrude Stein. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So she had one of these sort of main meeting places. Wow. Um, so, and she... This helped nationalize the movement of the Harlem Renaissance and build intercity connections between artists. Very cool. Uh, Johnson called her home the halfway house for friends traveling um, 
for French traveling and a place where they could freely discuss politics and personal opinions. Nice. And although black men were allowed, it mostly consisted of black women, such as Mary Miller, Marietta Boner, or Bonner, I don't know, Mary Burrell, etc. Nice. Um, Lots of Marys. Mary. You had Mary, to have Mary. a name of Mary to get in. Mary, Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? This for bells and cockle shells. Who's to say? <laughs> um, they were known to have discussions on issues such as lynching, women's rights, and the problems facing African-American families. And they became known as the Saturday Nighters. Hmm. Um, so she published her first poems in 1916, sort of backtracking just a little bit, right. um, in the NAACP's magazine called Crisis. Crisis? Um, Crisis. Mm. Yes. Uh, she published four collections in total of all of her works, um, the Heart of a Woman in 1918, Bronze in 1922, Autumn, and, and Autumn Love Cycle in 1928, and Share My World in 1962. Um, Johnson also had a weekly column called Home, Homely Philosophy that was published from 1926 to 1932 in 20 different newspapers, including the New York News, Chicago Defender, Phil, Philadelphia Tribune, and Pittsburgh Courier. Hmm. She wrote numerous plays, including Blue Blood, performed in 1926, and Plumes, performed in 1927. Um, in 1934, she lost her job in uh, the Department of Labor with the change of administration. Aww. And, yeah, it happens, though, Aww. politics. Uh, and she returned to supporting herself with temporary clerical work. Uh, Johnson received an honorary doctorate in literature from Atlanta University in 1965, and then she passed away in May 1966. Wow. Uh, then in 2009, it was announced that she would be inducted into the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, that is Georgia Douglas Johnson, and uh, I guess I need to decide which poem I'm going to read. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. I, um, <laughs> Where did my, my thing go? I wanted to read, I, I guess I may as well just read, um, uh, all of her poems, or at least a lot of the ones I came by were fairly short poems, which I think is really interesting. Nice. Um, but I guess I'll read the first one that I sort of came across that I really liked, and I mentioned it earlier, um, called The Heart of a Woman. Oh, I was hoping you'd read that. Yeah. So this was published in 1918 in her collection, um, called called The Heart of a Poem and Other, The Heart of a Woman and Other Poems. The Heart of a Poem and Other Women. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, me too. That's actually kind of nice. Um, Don't so, take it. Tim, 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 Tim. Tim, 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 This is The Heart of a Woman. The heart of a woman goes forth with the dawn as a lone bird, soft, winging, so restlessly on, Afar o'er life's turrets and veils does it roam. In the wake of those echoes the heart calls home. The heart of a woman falls back with the night and enters home, alien cage in its plight, and tries to forget it has dreamed of the stars while it breaks, breaks, breaks on the sheltering bars. She dedicated that to her husband? Mm -hmm. Oh, damn. Right? Youch. Right? <laughs> That's so, amazing. I know. So she's talking about, like, having these gorgeous dreams and her heart sort of, like, wanting to soar, basically. And then but realizing that it's against caged. the cage. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so it's just this gorgeous poem. I honestly, uh, maybe I'll read another one because it is fairly short. Yeah. Um, it's beautifully sad though. Yeah. And it also, the, the heart of a woman, the, the title reminds me of one of my favorite, my favorite Jeff Buckley song, mm-hmm. um, Just Like a Woman. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I mean, it has nothing to do with it subject wise, but just the like, I don't know. I always find his music is very beautiful but maybe some of the lyrics are kind of harsher yeah and that sort of echoed in mm-hmm. this poem so mm-hmm. just made me think of it yeah um I will read one more uh it's from that same collection the heart of a woman and other poems which I feel like um it, it's it was published within that sort of time period that we're talking about um right now or that I I sort of went over so it's fitting um this one is called my little dreams I'm folding up my little dreams within my heart tonight and praying I may soon forget the torture of their sight. For time's deft fingers scroll my brow with fell relentless art. I'm folding up my little dreams tonight within my heart. Hmm. It has, I feel like, similar themes. Yeah. To the, I mean, it makes sense because it's in the same collection, but it's like, yeah, having just must have felt so stifled and sort of, yeah, 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 not being able to fully sort of act on what um, she knew she wanted to do, and, right, and what was she was capable of, and and all that. I feel like in ways, in many ways, number one, her husband wasn't being supportive of her. She was a woman, and then especially a woman of color during right. a time when it's like they just didn't have. I mean, a time where she could see all of this thriving, all of the, the thriving community of uh, African Americans and everything like that. But then also, it's like still feeling somewhat stifled oh, within that. and separate. And so sure. it's like you have all this sort of inspiration and drive of the community around you right. that you then can't fully like act on in the way that you want to. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, that's Georgia Douglas Johnson and a little bit about the Harlem Renaissance next week. Not sure who, would, who I'm going to do yet, but um, yeah, I really, I really loved sort of this idea of doing a little bit of a series on the Harlem Renaissance. I love that idea. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, thanks for listening. Should we take a quick break? <laughs> I think we should take a quick break. A quick break. Quick break. Delilah, what do you think? Yeah, she says yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ready, set, go. And we're back. We're back. We're here. We're Thank doing it. Thank you for listening to our hilarious advertisements. Advertisements, so if you will. so funny. Um, we both got our lovely cups of tea this time, too. We did, yes. Delilah stuck her uh, tail in mine, so mm-hmm. I'm blessed. And <laughs> apparently done with my tea. <laughs> I mean, there's hair in it. It's all uh, good. I mean, I think there's hair in mine, too, and she didn't put her tail in it. It's just... There's just always hair There's everywhere. Just hair. Delilah, you're welcome. She's ever present in our lives. Um, okay, I'm going to talk this week about my the third and fourth wave of feminism. We could make Polyjuice Potion with her. <laughs> oh my <Hair>. God. <laughs> <laughs> no, I we waited. couldn't because remember how bad it turned out for Hermione Granger in the episode I mean, two? And like by episode, cat. I mean. She was just, she was just embarrassed. It wasn't that bad. She was just embarrassed. I bet it was real painful hacking up hairballs for the next two weeks. She went to the infirmary. That's true. Twice in that movie. Because of the cat and then because she got um, yeah. petrified. Mm-hmm. Jesus. 
Yeah. Can't believe you even joke about something like that. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Back on track here. This week, I'm going to talk about third and fourth wave feminism. Woo! Um, this is the the most up to date, like most recent, current form Did you of say feminism. Third and fourth. Yeah, third and fourth. I. In my head, I thought you said, like, first and fourth. Well, if I did, I meant third and fourth. You probably said that. There's also an airplane flying overhead. Let's maybe wait a second. Wee. All right. Great. That's enough. That's it, really. I just want to talk about third and fourth wave feminism. And as always, we want to give a special thanks <laughs> to... <laughs> um, no, but for real. Uh, this is our current wave, the fourth wave, what we're in right this very minute. Riding the wave. Riding the fourth wave all the way in and it's looking pretty good so a long way to go okay so let me first talk about the third wave the third wave of feminism <laughs> third wave feminism third third wave tenemanism tenemanism <laughs> the third wave of feminism emerged in the mid 1990s around the time we were born uh, it was led by Generation Xers, or those born in the 1960s and 70s, a.k.a. moms and dads of us today, usually. Those who came of, of age... Of the millennials. <laughs> yeah. Those who came of age in a media-saturated and culturally and economically diverse time. That's who we're talking about. Got it. The third wave was made possible by the greater economic and professional power and status achieved by women of the second wave the massive expansion of opportunities for the dissemination of ideas created by the information revolution of the late 20th century and the coming of age of Gen X scholars and activists. Third Wave Direct Action Corporation, organized in 1992, became in 1997 the Third Wave Foundation, dedicated to supporting groups and individuals working towards gender, racial, economic, and social justice. Both of these corporations were founded by Rebecca Walker. Can you maybe take a guess as to who her fav famous mother was? No. No? That's all right. It, um, her mother is the novelist and second wave feminist Alice Walker, the woman who wrote The Color Purple. Uh, it was a very, it was a pretty far-fetched chance that you would get that right. But yeah. anyway... That's who Rebecca Walker is. That's all good. <laughs> so Rebecca Walker is one of the biggest voices in this third wave feminism. She was the one who like did the stuff. Did the damn thing. Yeah, she did the damn thing. Women of this movement grew up with the expectation of achievement and examples of female success, as well as an awareness of the barriers presented by sexism, racism, and classism. Inspired by postmodernist movements, Third wave feminists sought to question, reclaim, and redefine the ideas, words, and media that have transmitted ideas about womanhood, gender, beauty, sexuality, femininity, and masculinity, among other things. The spirit of third wave feminism can be seen in the raw honesty, humor, and horror of Eve Ensler's play, The Vagina Monologues, which was published during this time. I've never seen it. Me either, but I've read uh, monologues from it, and it's quite I interesting like I probably have yeah uh the righteous anger of punk rocks riot girls movement and the playful seriousness of the gorilla girls a group of women artists who donned gorilla masks in an effort to expose female stereotypes and fight discrimination against female artists gorilla is spelled like gorilla warfare but they dressed up as gorillas 
which is funny. Funny. But it's a statement. Uh, by about 2000, some writers from inside and outside the movement declared the third wave had broken. And many believe that the fourth wave of feminism didn't begin until around 2012 with a focus on sexual harassment, body shaming, and rape culture. Hmm. A key, long time in between. Yeah, it is. I mean, things were still definitely happening. Um, like, uh, for example, the first use of the Me Too Mm-hmm. Uh, as a as a feminist tool uh-huh. came out in like 2006 okay. um, which I'll talk about in my feminism fun fact in just a moment hey. um, but yeah for the most part like pe- scholars at least believe that there was this sort of lull for like 12 years hmm. um, but in 2012 uh, the fourth wave seemed to uh, rise up And a key component was the use of social media to highlight and address these concerns. Mm -hmm. Fourth waivers advocate for greater representation of traditionally marginalized groups in politics and business and argued that society would be more equitable if policies and practices incorporated the perspectives of all people. This wave utilizes print, news, and social media to collaborate and mobilize, speak out against abusers of power, and provide equal opportunities for women. Some books associated with the fourth wave include Men Explain Things to Me by Rebecca Sonnet, The Vagenda by Rhiannon, Mm -hmm. Lucy Coslett, and Holly Baxter, and Everyday Sexism by Laura Bates. All of those, I'd heard of Everyday Sexism and I'd heard of What Men, or Men Explain Things to Me, Mm -hmm. um, both of which I still need to read, but um, just some light reading if if you are interested, Mm -hmm. dear readers, listeners. Um... So my feminism fun fact for the week, I have two. I have two to make up for last week's mishap because I forgot one. You came up with the Greta one real mm-hmm. quick, but I didn't really research one. one. Yeah, so there's two this week. Yeah. Um, this may be common knowledge, but just in case our listeners don't know, the Me Too movement dates back to 2006 when Tarana Burke, a civil rights activist from the Bronx, began using the phrase Me Too to raise awareness of the pervasiveness of sexual abuse and assault in society. And the phrase developed into a broader movement following the 2017 use of hashtag Me Too as a hashtag after the Harvey Weinstein sexual abuse allocations. Yeah. Um, and then feminism fun back number two, in 1992, um, well, 1992 became the year known as the Year of Women. The Year of the Woman, when four women entered the U.S. Senate to join the two already there. The 1990s also saw the first female United States Attorney General and Secretary of State, as well as the second woman on the Supreme Court, can you guess, Notorious RBG. We love a Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. She's the best. All right. So that's our Feminism Corner, and my poet today is Anne Carson. Very cool. Anne Carson is a Canadian poet, essayist. She's from Canada. A. She's from Canada Dry. She's from Canada. And she drinks the dry seltzer. Yes. With her lemonade. The Canada Dry Seltzer, yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she's a Canadian poet, essayist, professor of classics, and translator. She was born June 21st, 1950. I don't have a lot of information about her personal life or her life before publishing, um, but she did live in Montreal for several years, and she taught at McGill University, the University of Michigan, and at Princeton University, 
uh, from 1980 to 1987. Does she translate to and from French, I'm assuming? No. I mean, maybe, but um, a, a lot of the information I have is from Greek. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Um, so in high school, a Latin instructor introduced Carson to the world and language of ancient Greece and tutored her privately. Oh. She enrolled at St. Michael's College at the University of Toronto, but left twice, citing that uh, cur uh, curricular constraints as the main reason why, hmm. which I think meant that she didn't want to take this one course, and she just kept leaving and then coming back when she didn't have to take it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, I she, get that. Yeah. She finally completed her BA in 1974 her MA in 1975, and her PhD in 1981. Mm. She also spent a year studying Greek metrics and Greek textual criticism at the University of St. Andrews. What does Greek metrics mean? Oh, like in like literary metrics. Yeah. Not yeah. like, not like, like the math Modes system. of membership? <laughs> no. <laughs> not membership. Measurement. Measurement. Really yeah, I knew what you meant. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> it's, it's cool. <laughs> because of this extensive background in classics, classical language, comparative literature, anthropology, history, and commercial art, Carson blends ideas and themes from many fields into her writing. Her main influences are Sappho, Simon Weil, or sorry, Simone Weil, Homer, Virginia Woolf, and others. Her books blend the forms of poetry, essays, prose, criticism, translation, dramatic dialogue, fiction, and nonfiction all together, wow. which I actually think you'll really see in this poem that I'm going to read. Cool. They're like, it's, it's actually kind of scary how accurate that is, that wow. like you're going to see all of it Everything. in one poem. It's wow. pretty intense. Now, it's a long poem, okay, but it does touch on all of those aspects, which is cool. Yeah. Um, In 1986, Carson published her first book, Eros, the Bittersweet. This was named one of the 100 best nonfiction books of all time by the Modern Library. The book traces the concept of Eros in ancient Greece through its representation in poetry of the time. Wow. So um, uh, Carson considered seriously how triangular and mimetic desires have represented it have been represented in the poetry of Sappho as well as the relationship of Eros to solitude. So for those who don't know, like me perhaps, Eros meant a lot of different things in ancient Greece. Okay. Um, so Eros as a concept is one of four ancient Greco-Christian terms which translated loosely to love. Hmm. Uh, in this case, passionate love or romantic love. Oh, so interesting. um yeah. for example, our English term erotic comes from the Greek word Eros. Oh. So you see, eros, erotic, there you go. There you go. There you go. Throw some Windex on it. <laughs> you give me a word. Any yeah. word, and I show you how the root of that word is, is Greek. Greek. <laughs> Please tell me you all have watched My Big Fat Greek Wedding at least five times in your life. Oh my god, one and two. Uh, Although two is really not as good. No, but one is one is brilliant. Uh, it's so funny. Oh my gosh, so long. You want to watch it? Not not now, movie, but, but like yeah, okay. Yes, please. Um, Carson was an Anna Maria Kellen Fellow at the American Academy in Berlin for the fall of two thousand seven. 
The classic stage company, a New York-based theater company, produced three of her translations in their 2008-2009 season. Um, they were Agamemnon, Electra, and Euripides' Orestes as an Oresteia, which hmm. we've heard of and probably read, I think. Yeah, in, in I mean, college. Well, yeah, Agamemnon and Electra also. But, like, her translation of Agamemnon, mm. I don't know that we read, yeah. but we may have very well read an Oresteia, and I think that's hers. Yeah. Or at least I've read excerpts of it at some point. Uh-huh. From 2010 to 2016, she was an Andrew Dixon White professor at large at Cornell University. Hey, Cornell! Upstate. She's Upstate. also... Distinguished poet in residence at NYU and was a judge for the 2010 Griffin Poetry Prize. Poetry Prize. Poetry Prize. (laughs) Just a few of her many titles include Glass, Irony, and God, 1995. Autobiography of Red, a novel in verse. Red is in like the color. Yeah. Men in the Off Hours. The Beauty of the Husband, a fictional essay in 29 tangos. Float, and The Bacay, uh, a translation of The Bacay by Euripides. Hmm. I think that's how you say it. Bacay? Baki? Bacay? I don't know. Um, it's that Maybe Bacay. Bacay. Well, because it's... Maybe. That's her translated. Bacay. Bacay. And then Bacay. So, yeah, yeah, I feel like Bacay is probably... Yeah. So The Bacay by Euripides. She did a translation in 2017. Cool. Okay. So, this doozy of a poem that I want to read for you, um, you'll have to bear with me. I'm going to read it as if it is an essay, okay. even though it's sort of split up into yeah. stanzas and stuff, yeah. just because it's a lot easier to track. Sure. Um, it is called Pronoun Envy, and it was hmm. published in print in the print edition of the February 10th, 2014 issue of The New Yorker. Cool. Pronoun Envy is a phrase coined by Cal Watkins of the Harvard Linguistics Department in November 1971 to disparage certain concerns of the female students of Harvard Divinity School. In a world where God is he and everyone else mankind, what chance do we have for a bit of attention, seemed to be their question. Cal Watkins, how patient a man, did not say, you carry tale, mumble news, marplot, find fault, spoil sports but rather that pronouns themselves were not to blame. It's the Indo-European system of markedness, a binary system which regards masculine as the unmarked gender, as if all the creatures in the world were either zippers or olives. Except way back in the Indus Valley in 5000 BC, we decided to call them zippers and non-zippers. By 1971, the non-zippers were getting restless. They began bringing kazoos to their lectures to drown out certain pronouns and masculine generics. Now, a kazoo is a toy, a noisemaker. It scrubs away the air in that place. What can you do with a piece of scrubbed away air? Various things. You can fill it with neologisms, or with reanalysis, or with exaptation. Let's explore exaptation. To accept is to adapt in an outward direction. You may have seen pictures of a kind of dinosaur called the Archaeopteryx, which has feathers but did not fly. Its feathers kept the Archaeopteryx warm. Meanwhile, everywhere, ice was melting. 
feathers for warmth became redundant. One night, the Archaeopteryx excapated its, exapted its feathers as wings, and over the yards of Harvard rose divinity students in violent flight, changing everything, changing nothing, soaring and banking under the moon, intending, no doubt, to never come back. But, of course, that proved impossible. They did come back. They finished their degrees. They used their wings to shoot pronouns around on a big hockey rink, back of the divinity school. Night cold rushes onto my forehead and an era of emotion up under my tongue when I recall those games. But because a binary system uses numbers in base two, requiring only one and zero to express its differential, we had to score our games in scandal and sadness in tungsten and long-twisting streets, in bride-habited, maiden-hearted, thief-stolen, wind-led, marble-contact, wonder-wounded, to-and-fro-conflicting, world-without-end marks of our own invention. And to this day, if you look behind the Divinity School, and if you know what to look for, you may see a slight residue of those nights. Here's what to look for. A pony standing quiet with one ear bent. He seems to have a bit of capture caught in it. He shakes his head, and all around you, soaking the night and the yards and whatever is alienable or inalienable there, comes a smell like a new tuxedo. Wow. What? What? There's so much there. There's so much. But you see how yeah. it's like poetry, totally, but then also definitely nonfiction and mm -hmm. essay mm -hmm. and also fiction because what the hell is that pony doing there? Mm -hmm. And like, it just, it just, and it's she, like, there's, she goes into criticism, a little bit of like, you know, like, I mean, narration slash like first person dramatic stuff, dialogue. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Everything is there except maybe translation, but it's actually kind of not, or it actually is kind of there because she's explaining the, the um, like the vocabulary of, I mean, pronouns themselves. And it's just, it's, it's so incredible. And I read it and I was like, <gasps> She did it. <laughs> like, yeah. she, she could write just one thing and she could be called a novelist, a poet, a yeah. nonfiction author, you know, right, like right, all of right, these things. Right. Um, well, and she puts into words so well the struggle of like, of dealing with pronouns and this sort of like binary world that we have, have created lived in and for are ourselves. To sort of evolve away from or and somehow like somehow come to terms with realizing that that's not really how you can describe I loved us. the metaphor of zippers and non-zippers yeah but some zippers of them are olives, olives. Yeah, yeah yeah um that was just so I mean it because it is it makes it so easy to understand why mm -hmm. would you ever call an olive a non-zipper right because I mean duh it's not a zipper but like it's also not a lot of other things too mm -hmm. like no exactly woman like why do we call them why don't we call them something else? Like, I don't know, mm -hmm. not, not pencils, well, and it's you know, like there's not just two things, right? It's not just two different things. There's, it's impossible to have a binary and 
feel like everything is actually encapsulated in that. Right. Like, there's just no way. So in short, gender is dead. And Anne Carson, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> Morbid. Great. <laughs> Yeah. Um, wow. So that is third and fourth wave feminism. I'm probably going to do another poet next week. Cool. Um, that's from the fourth wave. Great. Just because she was, well, she was more so third wave. She was definitely third wave. Yeah. Um, so if I can do like maybe a more contemporary one for yeah. the end of this and Very. then we'll move mm -hmm. on to some other fun topic, but that's about it. Amazing. Yeah. Love it. Well, that's about it for us then. Um, we want to give a special thank you, as always, to Zach Adkins for his intro and outro music. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Last week we did a little shout out for him as well. He has a new album coming out onto Spotify and wherever else you listen to music um, called Dexter Hall. No, it's called January to June and it comes out October 15th. Um, take a listen. It's really good. Uh, and then also, if you are listening to this and you see down in the show notes, there is a link you can follow to a support page, and that is where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month. Dollar menu. Donations. And, <laughs> and uh, all those donations go to a really great cause, we promise. It helps us. us. <laughs> it helps us get new equipment and maybe a better recording space with less background noise like airplanes and sirens and Marguerite can't uh, blackmail me. No, can't, would do the thing where you put yourself in the quiet time and I, okay. <laughs> I don't know that, it failed. I was trying to call back to the, never mind. <laughs> what? I don't know. <laughs> Put you in the quiet time. You know how you make the noise happen only when I'm saying things. Uh, oh! <laughs> That's what I'm you were so trying tired. to say. Yeah, it was hard for me. My body's tired. Oh my god. But then also maybe someone to help edit so I don't have to stay up late. Yes. Every night that you <laughs> edit. Um... And, um, yeah, and as always, rate and review this podcast and give us a shout-out on your Instagram it if you like helps. us. Yeah, Spread the word, yo, because soon we're going to be coming right back at you with all of our shorter episodes with your work, and we mm -hmm. want you guys to have the biggest audience yet. Exactly. Our audience is your audience, quite literally. It's very true. Mm-hmm. So, so do it. Do it. <laughs> send us your good stuff. Send us your bad good, stuff. Good stuff. Send bad, us bad stuff. Send us uh, a little follow or rate and review, and we will love you endlessly for it. We love you anyway, but do it. We'll love you even more if you do it. It's true. It's very true. Okay, bye. bye.